0: This is Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics.
1: And this is Jacob Brass with Longleaf Fertilia, and you are listening to
0: the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the
1: Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy.
0: Hitting the button. We are going. Welcome. Everybody, this is episode 154 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics.
1: I'm Jacob Roth with Longleaf Reptilia. Uh,
0: real quick, this show is brought to you by blackboxcages.com. Please check them out. racks Cages. If you saw us in Marietta, uh, over the weekend,
1: hey, hey. it
0: was a good time. It was sold a bunch of cages, yeah, I was brought awesome. home a bunch of cages. Oh, yeah, brought did you get your home. setup?
1: no i'm trying to decide if i'm going to quite yet because i'm going to be moving hopefully mm. soon so i don't know if i want to go through it all just to tear it back down um so i'm kind of debating on it um, plus i need to get some stuff set up my cage first anyways and some thermostats and stuff so i was I, off yeah. the ball on some of that so
0: we came back sunday and i spent most of monday getting everything set up i got the XR20 rack. Um, and then I got five of the XA Bio G's, which are the 18 by D by 24s. Got the rhinos set up in those. And I got some other stuff coming to fill out, like finish, finish those cages and those setups. Um, they'll look good. And I'll be having a video done on that. As soon as those come in, I get them done. So.
1: Yeah. I, I got a XR20 um which is a 20 slot um i think they call it a hatchling rack but it's made you can have it has three different size tubs so it's not just for hatchlings certainly uh but i got an xr20 i got a three slot v70 and then i got a three by two by two um, i believe they called it the bio 24 if i remember correctly i'd have to look um but it's their three by two. <laughs> okay yeah, we're really off this week. <laughs> but yeah, I got a 3 by 2 by 2 bio enclosure from them. Absolutely beautiful. It is a amazing enclosure. I can't wait to set it up. Um, Like I said, I'm probably moving soon, so I'm trying to decide if I'm going to set everything up just to move it all or if I want to leave it packaged for the time being. Rock and roll. But either way, I got to get some thermostats and some light bulbs and some timers and all that good jazz. Um, but yeah. Other than Black Box, this episode is also also brought to you by Steve's snakesuary with Steve's snakesuary and Venom Hot Sauce. Yeah. So check him out. Um. Yeah, he does a lot of good stuff. He's kept running his own snakesary and
0: by the hot sauce, you're helping him with public outreach, public yeah. education, uh, relocations
1: rescues,
0: rescues. Like rehabilitations. He
1: does uh, shows. All that, yeah, all that yeah. stuff. You he help fund his Snakesuary. He does all kinds of stuff. So check him out, follow him on all so- social media platforms. Yes. And,
0: uh, uh, yeah. We got a lot to unpack this episode because we are joined by Mr. Zach Goodnow of Equatorial Ecosystems. What's going
2: on, dude? Uh, not too much. Another day. How about you guys? Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, yeah no man, for sure. Excited to uh, excited to have you on and get into this.
0: Yeah, it's uh, everything's good. You know, we're in the swing of of breeding season. At least I am. Um, just sort of gearing up and trying to get all my ducks in a row for for eggs and stuff, and make sure I'm I'm ready for when I start getting clutches. So yeah, man. But uh, yeah, so. Like I said, we got a lot to sort of cover. Um, you know, I sent you the outline and I said, even then we may not get to all of it because there's, you have a lot going on over there, man. Um, so what's the uh, sort of just a quick rundown of what you got right now and sort of what came first. I mean, you can give us your, your backstory as to how you got into herbs If you want to, we kind of leave
2: that open to people if they want to
0: throw that in there. If you, if you feel like it.
2: Yeah. So uh, I think, I guess getting started, my story's pretty similar, somewhat similar to everywhere else. I was a dinosaur kid, Um, but I guess a little different. My dad was a landscape architect, or is a landscape architect, and he did both the kind of landscape design and also the construction. So he was out on job sites pretty much all the, you know, every day. And I grew up uh, in a suburb of New Orleans. So we were not rural, but it wasn't big city by any means. And there was still, you know, woods and we had relatively big lot sizes. So he had, you know, there was wildlife everywhere and he'd bring home speckled king snakes and we'd keep them for a little while and, you know, let them go in the yard or um, kept a scarlet king snake for a little while, head box turtles. I was exposed to native plants and animals from a young age And so I kind of was born into all this. My mom is in the medical field. So I kind of had science from both sides. And so I kept mostly native herbs from, you know, as a child into kind of middle school. And I also grew tropical plants, um, a lot of orchids from, you know, seven, eight years old off into high school and into college. And when I first kind of got serious into what you'd call exotic herbs, was I had moved to college, and I was staying in a dorm, and I was researching how to build a terrarium to take some of my plants to, to school, and came across, you know, you, you're looking for tropical plant terrariums, and one of the first websites that pops up is board which is the the mm-hmm. old-school dart frog forum, and I had read about dart frogs in books as a kid, and was always fascinated by them, but didn't realize at that time that they weren't toxic in captivity, and that they were, you know, you could keep them, and, you probably go to a reptile show and find some. And so I started researching, fell down that rabbit hole, kind of researched for my whole fall semester. And then in January of 2011, that's when I got my first darts. Uh, so everything kind of started with dart frogs from a non native herb standpoint. And from about 2011 to 2014, 15, I kept pretty much predominantly dart frogs. I had some day geckos and kind of similar stuff sprinkled in there, but I was going back and forth in dorms, in college apartments with roommates who were friends, but weren't necessarily hurt people. So couldn't deal with, you know, necessarily mice in the freezer and crickets yeah. and, you know, I did, I, I kept basically what I could culture. So mm-hmm. cultured fruit flies. So I had dart frogs and, you know, the, the geckos and stuff that could kind of go along with that. And then Uh, being in South Louisiana, there weren't a lot of dark frog people here. So I just happened to post on dendro board one day, uh, you know, they had like a local forum and just to see who any, if anybody else was here. And I was contacted, uh, by a guy by the name of Ian Heiler, who come to find out he was, uh, one of the old timers at the Audubon aquarium. And he invited me over to his house and he introduced me to a a couple of other people who were in the dark frogs and kind of in the zoo world. And um, we all became real good friends. Ian served as a a pretty solid dark frog mentor to me. Some of the other guys uh, were kind of imparted other herp influences on me. And as I got to know Ian, come to find out he was really one of the godfathers of dark frogs. If you're familiar with El Cope Erratus, he was the one who went down to El Cope, Panama with permits through the aquarium, collected the first animals, brought them back to the U.S. and was distributing them around institutions. And yeah. then they also back then, AZA wasn't as stringent and mm-hmm. things could go to the public more easily. And so uh, he was the one who actually introduced things like El Cope and Kahlua and Cream Aratus and such into oh, wow. the hobby. Um, And so, you know, we didn't have a huge community down here, but the people who influenced me were, you know, longtime hurt veterans in both dark frogs and and other frogs or or in other species in general. And it really exposed me to things that maybe they weren't in vogue in the mainstream hobby. You know, I saw a a friend of mine was breeding Lystrophus, the tricolor hog nose, um, you know, five years before all these somewhat recent European imports were coming in back when those were, you know, $1,500 a pop. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just, at the time, I just thought it was a, you know, a cool snake, but to the rest of the world, that was something that, you know, a lot of mainstream herpers didn't see. So I was able to be exposed to some some interesting stuff at a at a young age in my herping career. So I think that kind of molded my interest going forward. So from about 2015 on, I started getting into some lizards. I've kept. Uh, a number of anole species kept in bred. Several different anoles. Uh, I keep uh, chameleolus barbatus now, which is the chameleon. I mean the Cuban bearded anole. Um, kept a bunch of day geckos right now. I've got delsuma clemmeri, ornata, and then lygodactylus like, williamsi. Um, stayed in darts. I've kept almost every genus of darts. I've never kept adelphobates. Um, but I think I've kept most of the others that are available to the hobby at a, at a genus level, not yeah. right far from keeping every species. Um, and then fairly recently started venturing into snakes. We've, we bought our own house in 2019. And so I've got a dedicated chest freezer that I can exclude from you know the normal person food and um, kind of started building up a, a generalized collection. Um, I, I tend to, I have trouble, I, I like I have broad interests, so I have trouble focusing in on one thing. So I've tried to focus in on certain types of animals that I that I like as opposed to, you know, there's no way I could have, you know, a garage full of all pythons or a garage full of, of any mm-hmm. select species. So right. um yeah, that's kind of my story up to now.
0: Awesome. Awesome, man. Yeah. I dig the uh, the Highlands and Islands shirt. Too. Oh, yeah. This is one of my
2: favorites.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you bring and juggle it all? I mean, I like, I kept darts as well. I didn't get too heavy into them, but, uh, you know, cultures, they're, when they're, when they're good, they're good. When they're not, they're a real pain. Um, And I, maybe it's for Jake and I, like snakes spoil you. That's what we've always sort of been exposed to the most. And so mm-hmm. we get stuff that needs more time, which is pretty much everything in comparison to snakes, you know. It's, right. How do you, what's it like going from that stuff that needs sort of, you know, every other day attention or daily attention to things like bloods that are just kind of, you know, like they do fine if you kind of just ignore them. Yeah,
2: so I guess coming from frogs and you know, kind of learning it all and getting habits from that, you're you're kind of geared towards that every day, every other day kind of attention. And, and I, I try to do that and I try to see every animal every day. Um, and and it it can be a challenge at times and it's time consuming, but you know, I've automated as much as I can. All of the, the watering is on misting. I've set up manifolds to, you know, I've got a a DI filter and I've got a bunch of different valves. If I need to fill this reservoir, I turn this valve and turn on the water and I just let it run for a few hours and, and vice versa all the way around. Um, I've got it pretty much down to where I'm either for the snakes, I'm, I'm cleaning enclosures you know, a, a couple of days a week, depending on the species. I'm feeding snakes, you know, two days a week or so, N- you know, not an individual snake twice a week, but, you know, colubrids one day, pythons another day. Um, the darts I, I'm down to, you know, I'm, I'm feeding, you know, three days a week, the darts and the lizards. And, and so I've kind of got it in a routine where every day I do a little bit. And I'm looking at everything every day, but I'm not necessarily working everything every day. Yeah, the man. other benefit that I've had is uh, I was sent home to work from home. In it's been like two years and a week now um, because of COVID, and I still I'm still working from home. So. I tend to I eat lunch at work and then I take my lunch break and I go and I water plants and I feed and, and maintenance <laughs> during the day. So it yeah, right. reduces what I have to do in the afternoons and it also saves from having to commute, you know, I'm cutting an hour off of my day just in a commute.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. I've thought about doing something where, you know, at least when I was dealing with crested on a much heavier level, you know, it was like I was gonna have an A group and a B group. And so that way I'm not doing Everybody all at once. You know, A group would be on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and then B group would be Wednesdays, Thursdays. um, I mean Tuesdays? Saturdays. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. Just to make things a little easier. But I think by the time I had started to get out of those, it didn't really matter anymore. But the, uh, in terms of are you breeding anything this year, snake wise?
2: Yeah. So I've paired, um, I had, five blood females that were kind of big enough to to go uh so i tried with with the five of them two of them didn't really progress i have a friend who's a vet and so we we ultrasounded them in january and there was two who really weren't developing anything so i kind of put those on hold and i'll try those next year and so i've got three that are that are still going i fed earlier today and one refused food the other two are still eating so i'm starting to see other people around the country are starting to get ovulations and eggs. So, um, I, I think I'm getting close, but this will be my first year breeding them. So I still don't fully know what I'm doing either.
1: I gotcha. That's cool. I'll tell you what you have the, one of the nicest, um, uh, Northern, uh, Northern Mexican pine snakes I've ever seen, man. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, man. That thing is, that thing is absolutely wicked. Do you have a, do you have a pair of those or just a single animal?
2: yeah so i've got so those are a friend of mine that i i have a a degree in, in wildlife and wetland ecology
1: and so a, a
2: buddy of mine who i went to school with those are actually his he had i'm taking care of them. he took a job a seasonal job up in alaska and he was like look i'm either gonna have to get rid of my snakes or you know i know you keep some snakes do you care if you take care of them i've had these animals he had the the dad of that animal for like 16 years. And so he lost a female to complications with, um, she looked like she was egg bound. He took her to the vet, the vet kind of had the idea that she was egg bound too. They opened her up. It was just some weird oviduct issue and it probably didn't need to be opened up. It was one of those things that you couldn't tell from the outside and she ended up passing, Um, but he produced, the one you're that that kind of peach headed one that that you're yeah. referring to. Um so I have the dad and the son, and then I just picked up a female last year. Uh it's a 2020, 2021 kid. Um mm-hmm. so it'll be a little ways before we're breathing yeah. those again. But I don't know if he may take the group and and we'll just split eggs or I'll hold on to a male and get him a girl. I however that works out when we get to that point.
1: I got you. Nice man. Yeah, that thing is absolutely gorgeous yeah
2: that young one is uh, the the dad is is kind of your typical yellow body with the brownish kind of reddish brown blotches right. um, but yeah that was that's a really nice young adult
0: yeah so would is it safe to say that you have sort of a, a particular focus on bloods?
2: uh now I guess you could say that that's probably the single highest number of individuals of a species I keep um I kind of got into them. Not on accident, but semi on accident. Uh, a, a friend of mine was talking to me about uh, the the North Sumatran Curtis, which is the, mm-hmm. they call them the pumpkin head or the orange head locale. And I thought those were cool. I didn't have any snakes at the time. Thought those were cool. I've always liked Bloods, especially the the Red Bloods, Brongers, my because of the, you know, just the normal form is, is yeah you can get really nice colors, even if you don't want to play with morphs and, but the, the, the size of the commonly seen animals kind of was intimidating. I don't have any interest in ever keeping retics or or berms or something like, just not a a huge snake kind of person. So I was always kind of intimidated by, you know, a 20 pound, six to eight foot snake that you see so many of these big ones get to. And But the Curtis stays significantly smaller. You know, they've got natural variation and, and they're just really nice in the natural form. So I picked up a pair of those in late 2019 from uh, Trace Harden, and then picked up another female from a fascination Herp out of Houston, was at a local show and they had produced some offspring from a pair of, of farmed animals. So that, that's uh, unrelated to anything else in the country and so i I picked up that girl and was keeping just the 1.2 and then a friend of mine took a job out of country and he had built up a, a decent uh collection of young bloods he had some golden eye stuff some batik stuff and didn't really want to offload the collection he's like hey you know you're keeping these curtis already would you be interested in just you know keeping these bloods too you'll be able to breed them long before i'm back so you know play with them we'll you know, make some of the things that I was going to make, you know, kind of further the project. And then when I get back, we'll figure out, you know, I'll either give him offspring or his adults back or however we work it out. And so I ended up with this group of the, the my too. And so from that, I got a really nice um, red martyr line male, uh, uh, T-positive batik, uh, 007 female, and then um, what they call an ivory batik, or I think they, the morph name for it is um, white lightning. Um, it's it's the non albino form of what they call electrostatic. So that's kind of what I started with, and then from there I've just kind of plugged in some of my own stuff that I bought in that time frame.
0: Yeah, Jake kept a few a couple of years ago. Um, I've had I don't even know if they were bloods or or something else but i've had one or two over the years as well and there mm-hmm. i know it seems like the guys that are really into into bloods like they're they're all in you know they're, right. they're really about them they don't it's it doesn't seem like it's very often you see someone that just has like one or two it's like if they have bloods they have a lot of bloods
1: i'm going right. to i'm going to be that guy except not with bloods i'm going to get a pair of borneos but that's going to be me because like, I, I want to like bloods more than I do if I'm being, <laughs> honest. cause like, I don't know why it's one of those. Like I really wanted to like them, but I kept them and like, there's nothing wrong with them, but they just like, they weren't for me. And like, that was fine. I think they're awesome animals. I absolutely love them. And I do plan on getting a, getting a pair of Borneos. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It was kind of, It was a weird phase for me. I don't know what it was. I was very fascinated (laughs) by I I was very yeah, I don't know what it was. I was very fascinated by them and I wanted to get like, you know, some morph, like I wanted, you know, like bloods for like morph stuff. And like I got some and then, you know, I kind of fell more for the wild type stuff and started going more of that route and I don't know. I just kinda dropped off with bloods. I think they annoyed me too much i got a couple animals that were just frustrating i think it just turned me off to them to be honest i think i, I think i went about it wrong i got the wrong animals and just kind of turned me off to them all together but
2: yeah i think of mine i have one that is absolutely unhandleable i mean when you're going in there to clean it's or when you're even taking it out and unfortunately it's a girl so it's a little bit bigger uh but you know it's I put on. Gloves, long sleeves to kind of reduce the heat signature. Trying mm. to fiddle with a hook—it's not easy to handle those things with a hook just because they're sheer girth and their weight. Yeah. So it's kind of get them to where they're not facing you. Tail it, support the body without getting tagged. Get it into a uh, another enclosure with a lid, just so that you can work the the tub or whatever you got them in, and then mm-hmm. figure out a way to get her back in, you know, without getting bit. But of I probably have. 20 ish animals and that's the only one that i really can't just you know open the tub and and take out
1: yeah i all mine i think i had at the most at one time i think i had four and like all of them were relatively handleable i had a couple Mm -hmm. that were kind of pissy i like to say they didn't like they didn't certainly didn't like me but they were they I'm were handleable. Yeah, they were handleable. I wouldn't put my face up to them, give them a kiss or nothing, but you know, <laughs> it was they were you could pick them up relatively easily. Once you had them in your hand, they kind of, you know, chilled out, but right. I don't know. It was it wasn't about their attitudes or anything. And that's the thing. I couldn't tell you why they weren't for me. They just weren't. That's and that's the thing. I have nothing negative to say about bloods. Absolutely not, but I don't know. It was weird. But yeah, no, yeah just there's just some
2: some species don't I don't love, I, I think Australian animals are are cool from a adaptation and, and science standpoint, right. but you know, uh, you know, you listen to so many people, their, their first place they want to go is, is oh, I got to get to Australia. For me, that's Central America. Australia is yeah. probably the bottom of my list. I, I love, you know, from Mexico to Northern South America, that's kind of
1: my fascination. Yeah, dude, I would love to go to South America. Any of those, any of those areas, Australia, I would love to go to Australia. Don't get me wrong. I'm definitely one of those people, but I don't so,
0: know, I'm with central you, and South America.
1: Yeah. Costa right Rica would me. be amazing, dude. Oh my God.
2: Have you gone down there at all? Have you done any? No, uh, my wife and I just booked this summer though, to Costa Rica. We were supposed to, nice. we were supposed to get married in June of 2020 and covid screwed up the, the entire wedding so we booted that a full year back so we got married last june and then our honeymoon was supposed to be to costa rica but we were still kind of in the middle of the COVID mess and so i said you know let let's let's do a honeymoon in the country save some money and then you know book a big trip once we kind of know what life's going to be like so i fingers crossed that everything stays tame as it is now and, and we can get yeah. down there.
1: That would be awesome, man. Is your yeah. wife is your wife into the frogs and snakes at all?
2: Uh, she got into it because of me. Before me, no. But um, she doesn't mind the snakes. She could probably do without them. Um, <laughs> really likes the frogs. Really likes the different turtles and tortoises I keep. Uh, mm-hmm. I have one monkey tail skink, Carusia, and she absolutely hates that thing. If there was anything <laughs> in the collection she'd get rid of, it's the Carusia. That's fine.
0: Why is it? Uh, is it prickly?
2: I don't know. She's she's just never it, from the day it came in. She's never liked them. My Ian, uh, the my dart frog mentor's wife. That was her thing. She had Crucia and she's bred Crucia for years, and has uh, a, I don't even know how many anymore, but but tons. And so we'd go over there, and and my wife would come. You know, in recent years, and her karushia she's got them tame i mean they'll ride around on her shoulder while she's doing housework and catherine would still have nothing to do with them she just for whatever reason doesn't enjoy the species so i mean they do um, have eyes
1: they're like so freaking gotta, cool though man monkey tail skins are it. amazing
0: yeah everyone most of the people that i've talked to that have had them they're like they're kind of they're kind of
2: violent
1: yeah, I've heard they're not <laughs> nice creatures yeah they're for <laughs> Wait,
2: for an herbivore they're they can bite and even just handle them their claws yeah and I just see them...
1: people scratched up from yeah yep. is...
0: so I noticed cruising through your Instagram that you have beards.
2: I do that and bairds. that's your fault
1: ah! <laughs> <laughs> of course it is
2: yeah, yeah. I, I kind of going back to my my central american enjoyment you know the that's kind of they fit into that mindset of you know a desert southwest down in the mexico species Mm -hmm. and the first ones i picked up uh was a a pair of the mexican form i got them from daytona last year so i think they're i think those are san antonio zoo line um and then after daytona i picked up a pair of the the hypos with the t-positive Whatever they are, and I'd like to eventually get a nice pair of of a Texas locale, you know, one that's kind of got the nice reddish brick undertones with a steely.
0: Mm -hmm. See that, Jake? A man with
1: taste. Hey, I have nothing against birds, man. Like birds, I think they're spray painted yellow rat snake. But yeah. (laughs) It's fine. No, they're super cool, man. The Mexicans and the Lomas are just are incredible animals, man. They they are very very pretty.
2: Yeah, and I don't like like you've pushed for years. I don't understand why they're so underrated. You know, listening to you guys is where I first heard about them, and that was kind of when when I went to Daytona last year. I told the group of buddies that I went with. I was like, if there's bears here, you know, that's one of the things I'd like to pick up, and they showed up, and so I didn't have any choice but to get them but you know i had never, never heard worked. of them five years the, ago was there were
0: those the ones that jordan parrot was selling
2: mm-hmm. yeah yeah
0: i got uh, my biggest adult male albino is from jordan from two years ago
1: oh nice i think yeah. so uh,
0: yeah. it was about a yearly when i got it so man you even got your platys
2: yeah and i've kept those are hard down here. The Abenawi are the probably the easiest because they're from a lower elevation. I'd mm-hmm. love to, I've got a buddy in Buffalo who breeds some of the nicest Fantasticus in the country. And I'd love to try them, but our summers and with hurricanes were just so I'd, I'd be scared if we lost power, that would be, they wouldn't live more than a couple hours.
1: Right there. I go back up. Wait, did you breed in Golems?
2: that is the first and only snake species i've bred to date
1: oh my gosh what a species to be (laughs) successful with man holy crap
2: so yeah i ended up with a i ended up with a trio uh from a from a friend and it ended they were one of the females was one person's one of the females was another's and then the male was his and then i kept them so it's like this four-way breeding loan and um I produced them last year and then we ended up kind of saying, you know, I, this four way deal is is a lot. So I, I gave the adults back and I kept, uh, I produced eight female offspring, which is almost unheard of to get everybody I've talked to said you basically get, you know, almost equal sexes if it's, you know, skewed one or two, one way is pretty normal, but I got eight females hatched out. And so uh, we kind of divvied those up among all of us and I kept two and I've swapped one of them with a buddy of mine local who breeds them. And so I'll have a male of a 2022 male and the 21 female. That'll be totally mine.
1: Nice, man.
0: That's cool. Uh, Casey got some at Daytona. He got, I think, a female. Yeah. There was one table across from us. And they were selling. And they just had, I think, a lone female, and Casey bought it. And I was playing with it when. We were Dude, there. they're so freaking cool, man! It's one of those species you really have to see them firsthand to sort of have a better appreciation for them. Yeah, you, know, you see pictures and stuff, and it's it's cool and all, but it's like once you get your hands on one, it's
2: just
1: it's different. It's,
2: it's like yeah, yeah it's all python, but it's not. You know, the Scalation is almost like a Gila or a beaded. Yeah, I guess it's it's
1: just a similar like the 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 beaded scales, man. It's it's yeah. wild. They're really, really incredible animals. Those are, those are one pythons. I don't have many, many species on my Python list anymore, but those are, those are on there I would really like to get in colons one day. They're super neat animals.
2: Yeah. I, I like them a lot there and, and the babies come out, you know, they, the adults can be kind of variable in color. The babies all come out pretty much jet black with highlighter, yellow stripes. So Right. Uh I kind of wish they'd keep that yellow coloration into adulthood, but I I really like the kind of reddish brown ones.
1: Yeah. And honestly like any type of color change that, you know, animals go through as adults, real you know, from babies to adults is always fun to watch to me. You right. know, even if it's minute, but just like watching my even my carpets go from red to, you know, this in between like pinkish white to you know, starting to get some of their adult colors to getting their adult colors. You know, it's just, it's cool to watch, you know, even though, no, as adults, they're not the bright red, you know, babies that they were, but they're still, you know, it's just cool to watch that transition with anything. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be a green tree, by the way. No,
0: <laughs> he's got, I mean, he's got emeralds too. You have eight, you have one northern uh, basin.
2: Uh, so I had a basin and that, that was just a, that animal had a a heart defect. That was another, a friend had purchased one and, uh, at about a year, he noticed it wasn't growing all that well. And our other friend who's a vet kind of took a look at it and said, seemed like it was something with the heart. So, um, he got, he was able to work out a deal with who he got it from and got credit or whatever. and, And he's now working with a bigger group of them. I have a northern uh that the same friend who gave me the bloods when he moved out of the country he sent me uh, a female northern that we bought at tinley uh, in 2018 and then i was able to find as far as we can tell it was either a captive born from a gravid female or maybe a, a real young import but the animal had been in country for a couple of years takes food fine Uh, an anaconda phase male that I, that I got a few months ago. Um, and it's eaten for me and and has done well so far. So fingers crossed, let him acclimate for a year or so. And the the girl's big enough. She could go. So maybe next year I'll, I'll try messing with them.
1: Very nice, man. I mean, uh, we were talking about, uh, emeralds this weekend with Casey Cannon, and, and um, we both talked about the anaconda phase and, you know, we agreed the anaconda phase is just, is, is my personal favorite. I, I absolutely love those. I know a lot of people like the, the really high white stuff, but for me, those anaconda anaconda phases really do it, man. They're, they're incredible.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, you look at like the, the white northerns versus basins. If you, if you want a, a really cool white and green snake and you have the means to do it uh, basins are the way to go just their attitude is so much better and and they get a little bigger and you know the white's a lot nicer so i think my friend likes the white northerns better so i'm hoping that and when we pair these we get a nice mix and i'll just hold back a couple litters and i'll keep the greens and he can have the whites and we'll both have projects to play with
1: yeah for sure Definitely the definitely the ideal situation. It's always fun having you know, projects with friends, even though me and Justin's, every time we seem to have done that, it crashes <laughs> and fails <laughs> <He has ass laughs> horribly. I don't know what it is or why. We haven't done that in You've quite cursed some time. us, bro. How, did yeah, us? Cursed. How did I curse us? Wisconsin curse. How did I curse us? You're the so one who's taking been care been of those Amazons, living bro. Living on a Indian ground or something. you were the one taking care of those Amazons. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> no comment.
0: <laughs> so as someone who has both avariums and racks, and that being sort of a never ending debate, sort of what's your thoughts on the on the whole thing? Because I, I we've I think we've been pretty open about our ideas on it. And it me especially saying, you know, do what works for the species, like what works best. So what's but your experience between the
2: Yeah, between I mean you? that's I kind of feel the same way. You know, you take like a blood python and you try to build an enclosure, I, I guess going kind of backing up. I started with, you know, dart frogs. So that's big, elaborate enclosures, you know, that that there's kind of no end to how you can design them. And so that was my mindset transitioning from dart frogs to, you know, say tree frogs that, that live high in the canopy and need more sterile conditions or lizards that that don't necessarily want. You know full out you know what people call bioactive you know full-scale planted enclosures all the way down to snakes that that may not feel comfortable in a glass enclosure um and so to me it's kind of do what's best for the particular needs of your animal and also what fits you know your you know your cleaning methods and and how you handle things if, if you're real meticulous and you can keep something spotless you can probably keep animals that might prefer something more you know bioactive on a more sterile substrate if you're a little on the you know you don't want to clean you know every dart frog feces or or whatever out of you know off of paper towels not suggesting to keep on paper towels but you know to use an example you you might want to go the more you know bioactive naturalistic route Um, i think there's a you can keep things there's not there are parameters that you have to meet for a species but there's not a set recipe that you have to follow just like the next person has to follow you know how i keep something may be different than how you know you keep something and that doesn't mean either of us are wrong you you come in you know you hear round and round the dark frog people you know don't use sphagnum moss only use you know you have to have eight inches of leaf litter in your bottom and, and and on and on all these dogmatic rules that are it's not just in the dart frog hobby it's in every hobby it's just different dogma for a different species right. but you know ian produced hundreds of of the terrestrial you know dendrobates and babies for himself for institutions and for you know the public sector and his breeder enclosures were, you know, 12 inch tall, acrylic, what he called flats, with a layer of pea gravel, a layer of live moss, a cocoa hut with a petri dish underneath it, and a little pool of water in the corner. And we used to laugh with him that, you know, none of your enclosures have leaf litter, but you're extremely <laughs> successful. And he's it's just simply that he was old school. He did it since the 80s before people used leaf litter. And he was just as successful as anybody is today. So if a you know if if somebody who only learned how to keep a species by reading on the internet walked into his you know terrarium area, they they'd blast him. But yeah. you know he figured out how to do it. So there's no real set. This is how you have to keep something, and this is the only way. You have to adapt your habits and your climate and everything else to it. And if that means you know, you have to keep some species in a rack, some species in an enclosure, then, you know, do what's best for the animal in in your situation. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I just, there's not a lot of people that sort of see, not necessarily see, but do both sides of that. You know, I know like with dart frogs, it's, you kind of don't have many other options. You know, it's kind of a, you know, if it's temporary, sure, paper towel, whatever, but Mm -hmm. like long-term you have to kind of, do the dance
2: and, and get a nice vivarium sort of setup going, but. You know. But you even see a shift in dart frogs, you know, for when I started, it was, you know, drainage layer, ABG mix leaf litter. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of started using uh calcine clay, you know, it, it's fired clay like the hydro balls, but it's finer rocks. And I use that, I drill all of my enclosures. And then I use that as the drainage layer and also the, the substrate because if you think of a rainforest soil, rainforest soils are extremely uh, nutrient poor. Typically, it's a clay. And then the trees are typically evergreen. So think like live oak. But they shed their leaves when a new flush of leaves comes. So there's a constant supply of leaf litter on the, the forest floor. But it's quickly eaten up by you know, either microorganisms or invertebrates, converted it in nitrogen, the plants eat that up because the soils are so nutrient poor and then the process just happens again. It's leaf litter fall, quick decomposition, use of the nutrients, it goes back into biomass and then it repeats. So you've got a really, really small layer of organic matter over something inorganic. And so the whole idea of, you know, ABG, you know, two inches of ABG or something, that works great for three years, but then that's also going to break down when you're using something like fired clay. It never breaks down. I have tanks that are, you know, seven, eight years old that I've never changed the, the clay portion out. I just keep topping it with leaf litter because most of the leaf organic matter breaks down and, you know, gets recycled by plants or whatever else in there. And you just constantly add more of that. But as long as your, your clay layer is, is aerobic so you're not allowing water to build up to the top it drains by you know mechanical pumping or a a actual drain hole your that layer is is fine into perpetuity so -hmm. people are shifting towards you know inorganic soils and then now you see a lot of people use that filter foam with leaf litter on top and you still the filter foam is rigid enough that you get you know that serves as kind of your drainage layer and also your your basis for roots to anchor into the roots Mm -hmm. grow into the drainage layer and they have access to water and whatever nutrients are in that water. And then they get their organic matter from the leaf litter, just like you would the clay. So even in something like dart frogs, I don't think you'll ever get away from, you know, some level of naturalistic, but they are going towards a more inorganic, you know, clean
0: method. Yeah. That makes sense. I don't know. I, I never, I mean, as far as substrate goes, it was always, I don't think the, the frogs much cared about the ABG mix, but the plants I'm sure definitely appreciated it, but right. Um, I mean, you're a big plant guy. That's a big part of your, your Instagram and stuff too. Was that something you got into before you got into to Bavaria or was that something that kind of came with it?
2: Yeah. So, so I kind of got started. I've been growing tropical plants since I was a kid. And so that kind of, started everything and then when i started keeping dart frogs the types of plants that i kept kind of shifted towards terrarium stuff and and now i've got terrariums and i've converted my i keep all of this we had a the house has an attached garage but it was built in the 80s and so our driveway wasn't designed for the size of vehicles that we drive today Mm -hmm. and so we can't make the turn into the garage to park the vehicles. so i just insulated the garage door put a mini split in and that's now my my herp and plant room mm-hmm. and so i've got two kind of mini greenhouse grow tents in there to to grow plants that need can't handle our extreme heat in the summer and then i also have a greenhouse for tropical plants in the yard so i do a lot of plant stuff both for my enclosures and, and to kind of sell to pay for the hobby and also just as a second or, you know, 15th hobby, depending on how you count.
0: <laughs> nice. The, the, so on Instagram, you talk about more rare plants.
2: Hold on, I kind of lost you. It went pixely. Is
0: that, uh, your Instagram says that you are rare plants. Yes. So what's the... I guess with with cuttings and stuff being so popular, you know what what constitutes certain plants being rare other than others?
2: So sort of like animals, there's some plants that come from countries that, that don't export or there aren't nurseries in those countries that, that produce the plants. And you know maybe you know a collector in South Florida brought some back. you know Panama is a country that there aren't really any plant nurseries in that are sending plants to the US but you know 30 years ago there were people that that you know flew down to panama and and pre-cytes and and pre all of these countries kind of closing up exports you'd go down there go into the jungles and collect seed collect specimens bring them back into the country and then they're not hard necessarily to propagate but your your beginning stock is only so many and you know some plants it's not as simple as you know chopping it at every node and taking a cutting it's you have to reproduce it by seed and so you know you have to have two plants blooming at the same time and then it takes two years for a a, you know a a seed to develop on the plant and then to grow that from a seedling to a commercially available plant is another couple years so um some of it is just things that don't propagate that well or aren't widely available or you know five years ago were niche terrarium species when covid hit plants kind of blew up especially in a lot of i've noticed in a lot of kind of tech centric cities i think people were able to work from home they made you know a lot of money they weren't affected a lot by the pandemic but when you were in lockdown and you couldn't leave your house or, or you could only leave your house to for essentials, you, people wanted to surround themselves with nature. And one of the reasons, one of the ways was to just buy a bunch of house plants and plants that were common to dart frog people and have been common to dart frog people for 10 years went from being, you know, $15 kind of throwaway cuttings to $150 plants overnight. And, um, a lot of the, a lot of what you see on the market as rare plants are not necessarily rare they were just niche plants that aren't in tissue culture or aren't mass produced in in any kind of trade but have always been passed around by hobbyists and now there's just such a demand for them as soon as they hit the market they're gone um so some of that is is what I, what I grow. I also grow a number of, uh, kind of small Mexican cacti. I do some Madagascan succulents and, and some stuff that, that actually is rare because, you know, you can't get it out of Mexico anymore, or it's just extremely slow growing and, and you can only reproduce it by seed. Damn.
0: What are your, uh, what are your favorite plants for using with, with the and dart frogs?
2: for dart frogs um well i guess um, for both tree,
0: for tree frogs as well because you know we yeah. haven't touched on that yet but you have those as well
2: so so similar yeah. kind of to the whole you know rack versus enclosure thing depending on the species of frog or or any kind of species that you're putting in a terrarium that'll kind of govern the plants you need um i i kind of view a i've gotten to where with my dart frog enclosures i like Kind of mass plantings of three to five different plant species. I tend to try to make to do plants that are only from Central or South America. I'm just kind of a purist in that. I'm not to the point where you know if my dart frog's from Panama. I'm only using Panamanian plants because that can be tough sourcing those things. But if I'm if I'm dealing with New World species, I try to use New World plants. Um, so I kind of try to set up my my substrate and my hardscape and then something kind of big and leafy that that will vine and grow into the background something like philodendron varicosum you get real nice big leaves the the back of the leaf has a bright red color and it provides cover for whatever species it is because no matter what frog you're keeping it's going to get into the leaf litter at some point even renamea or ufaga and it wants to feel secure so and the more secure it feels the more bold they're going to be and so I'll do something big and leafy to kind of eat up space and give them shadow on the ground and also places to, to kind of tuck away into. And those are also good for the arboreal species to deposit eggs. And then I'll put in something probably kind of tall and leafy in the corner, a calathea or a spathophyllum, you know, a peace lily, um, again, to give them cover and, and a place to roost. And then I'll just push in some Accent plants that are more for me give some leaf texture or some color to the tank and then depending on the species I think and this is probably People dark frog people like to use bromeliads. I do not like to use bromeliads Except in tanks where the frogs the the husbandry of the frogs calls for them you know, if you keep a tank of tinks and pack it with bromeliads, that really doesn't serve them any purpose because mm-hmm. they don't deposit tadpoles to them. It's just there to eat up space. I'd much rather do that with big leafy plants that they can use to to sit on and, and lay eggs on and other things. If I'm doing, you know, an anofaga, I'll use bromeliads, but I, I try to still get away from uh, neo neoresilias just because... It's just it's just a thing for me. All almost all the Ufaga are from you know Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Panama into South America. Almost all my are Brazi- Brazilian. So there are plenty of nice, really cool you know Central American bromeliad species that you can use in these tanks that handle the waste and the excess egg, you know, the, the broken down eggs that a Ranitomeya or a Ufaga tadpole produce without rotting out the bromeliad and also gives you a nice effect. And it happens to also be, you know, from the same country of origin. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, uh, when I had my Vanzolini, uh, I had one in with them or one or I might've even had two in there and they, they were in that thing all the time. They loved it, but
2: yeah. And they'll raised tabs and everything in them. Wasn't that
0: well-versed in, in plants. I had, see, that's what's interesting too, is you'd mentioned the Philodendron, uh, the varicosum, um, I had one of those and I had it in a, in a tank that I had some imported uh, blue jeans Mm -hmm. and it did great in that, that tank. And then of course the, the blue jeans was a complete disaster. Uh, And I took that plant out and I tried to grow it outside of that tank and it, for whatever reason, it just, it struggled and never, never came back. Yeah. Those
2: just want the leaves are so big and I think they're thin Those are the only time I've seen people do well with them outside of tanks, but it's typically like in a bathroom where it gets pretty high humidity most of the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you're just trying to grow it on a windowsill or something, unless your plant's really nice rooted and you keep it pretty wet, those tend to struggle outside of, they just like it really humid. Mm
0: -hmm. Jake, what plants are you using?
1: Yeah. no i plan to i i have plans to get into some plants but i have to do a lot of things i'm probably gonna i'm gonna keep it relatively simple you know i like the i like the pothos idea to let that vine around and grow and because that's because i want to keep it to potted stuff into my in my enclosures because i for a lot of the a lot of the snake species that i want to do planted stuff with they don't necessarily need a Saturated environment. So, I worry about actually watering plants in the enclosure and then keeping them, you know, hydrated without overwatering my snakes. So, I feel like potted plants would be the way to go and just kind of viney ones that'll grow around the enclosure and, you know, let it go up. And that way, when I need to water, I can contain it to the pot, help a little bit with the humidity in the enclosure and rock and roll with that. But um yeah, I know I have a lot of snake species that I plan on doing it with. We'll see how potted plants go with snakes. I'm a little worried about them destroying them and just yeah, tipping the over species. the pots, you know. Cause I, I'm gonna I wanna do a, a planted pothos in this um cage I'm going to do from Black Box. Um, but it's gonna be in with a big yellow rat and he's they're tad destructive. He's, yeah, he's big and he's strong. Yeah, you know, he's a he's very large, he's a very large animal. Um, so I worry about him tipping over the pot or something, but I want to get something kind of shallow, wide, hopefully not tip it over, but I also worry about him taking the plant out of the pot. So we'll see. Yeah. Something I've
2: done like with emeralds is, is I'll take a potted plant and take something like a 16 or 32 ounce deli cup. And if, as long as the pot's wide enough to where it sits on the top, you can, you know, you can either, if you have substrate, Bury that partially, so that'll keep them from tipping it, and you can also keep some water in that deli, so it'll be a little heavier to keep them from tipping. And if you just have, you know, if you're growing pothos or some of those, you know, the, the grocery store philodendron types, if you put a little, like a just a inch or so of the soil line submerged in that water, it'll just wick up, and you don't have to worry about keeping your terrarium substrate overly wet, but your pot stays moist, and you also don't have to water near as much.
1: Right, right. Okay. Yeah. That yeah makes, that makes sense.
0: In some of my chondro cages, I have just pothos in the water bowl just growing from that. But I've noticed <laughs> you kind of have to have a, a pretty big chunk of pothos in there for it to really work well. Because I've tried it with like, you know, small cuttings with only, you know, one or two leaves on them. And they never seem to take off. Like they never seem to do well. They, they seem to just consistently just stay where they're at when you put them in there. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like they don't die, but they don't. They don't grow
0: either. Grow, yeah. yeah. But putting like a, you know, I was telling Jake, I what I've been doing is I go to Walmart and get, you know, decent sized pothos for 10 bucks and then I'll cut that up either in half or in like quarters <clears> and then put those pieces uh, with the new bio G's that I got with the rhino rat snakes and one of the condros, I did that and got some pots that have like a little reservoir in the bottom. Um, and. I just split those up and put those in those cages, and those have LEDs, so they're you know they should grow really well in those. But right. I've even in that rack that I have the condors in, it's it's a Cambro rack and it has lights in the on each cell se- on each shelf. <clears throat> I don't know those like for Pothos, I was kind of surprised at how how neutral they were. Like they did, like I said, they did they weren't dying, but they weren't growing, and I don't know. Yeah. What they, you know, if it was just not frequent enough water changes or what. I mean, I'm not really a plant guy. I was, you kind of become a plant guy sort of by default when you get into dart frogs because it's part okay. of the whole thing. But as far as like hardcore learning about plants and, and that kind of thing and what does best wear and and whatnot, I don't know. I just, I've always been told pothos will grow in like a dark closet. You know, that's supposed to be one of the easiest plants to, to get to grow. And these just didn't. <laughs> Yeah. It could
2: be just like you said, the cuttings were kind of small and they, you know, the bigger you, the bigger cutting you start with, the more area it has to photosynthesize and, and to kind of get started and probably bigger cuttings, even without roots will probably, you know, get going faster.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't know. I love them because like you said, you know, for humidity reasons, even in the individual tubs of that camber rack with the chondros, you know, I can tell. You can just feel that there's more humidity in there. Right. Um and I think with those, because they don't they don't have a ton of ventilation either, I think it's really good to help circulate air a little bit. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it's just such a it's such a simple and, and inexpensive and easy sort of hack for species, especially, you know, like emeralds and stuff that that need a little bit more of that boost for, you know, sheds and stuff.
2: So um, Yeah, and just cover. I had a friend, yeah. uh, my friend who has the basins, you know, he just took he didn't even use live plants. It was just some of the kind of the more plastic, you know, they're not the silk plants. They're the, the plasticky fake plants from Michael's or or a craft Mm -hmm. store. And he hung them up on his perches and the basin moved to the opposite side of the cage and and sat perched in between the the clumps of, of greenery. Just, you know, they see that as, you know, pattern breakup and everything else Mm -hmm. too. So it's gotta be beneficial to him just from a, you know people like to talk about enrichment and such
0: yeah right yeah that would, i mean that'd be nice eventually i'd like these these pothos and my chondro tubs to to get big enough to where i can have it in it like do a separate water bowl and then have that that's just full of water and it just growing from there right um our buddy david brahms i mean he has a giant i think it's either a pothos or philodendron, or maybe both together um In his room, he just he planted one and it just took over, and he's just let it go, and he's got its own light and everything, and he's like that bumped up the ambient humidity in his room, you know, a ridiculous amount. Yeah, I bet it's a a big, big, just blob of plant just in (laughs) this room. It's just growing uncontrollably. I'll have to find a picture of it.
1: And it works even better because then you can just take cuttings from that for your enclosures (laughs) and stuff. Find another plant ever again, right? No, that's great. Yeah, no, I saw your um, your little uh, rainforest set up on your on your Instagram the other day, in your in your garage with all your plants. I thought that was uh, I thought that was really neat. Yes,
2: yeah, so that that's one of the grow tents. It's just kind of a um, it's almost like a you know the extruded aluminum pieces that that you would put a tent together with, mm-hmm. and then it's got this canvas covering. The inside's all like silver mylar, so it reflects light. And I just put up some cheap Amazon LEDs and then there's two Baker's racks in there and it's just loaded down with mounted plants and potted plants and I've run, it's got a mist King hooked up to it and I've got, I don't know, probably
1: 20 misters that go off in there. Awesome, man. Yeah, no, I thought that was, I thought that was really neat.
0: Let's see. David does have a picture of this. Hey, that's the one I produced.
1: Nice, it's a good-looking animal. They some of the babies he produced are just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, you would think with those Cambro tubs being so clear and stuff, and having a light on each shelf in that rack, that plants would be all about it. But I just, I don't know. <sighs> I mean, do you think they do better when they're planted in soil as opposed to just water? Dear I mean, obviously, there's grief. more nutrients and stuff, but...
2: Yeah, I mean, with pothos, you see them growing up in brick walls in Florida. So, yeah, I, I think giving them soil, and, and obviously, there's benefits to that. Um, but once they're rooted, I think, in water is fine. I mean, there's you know, I remember my grandma had one that just sat on her windowsill in a, in a vase of water that I don't know if she ever even changed the water. She just topped it off when it got low. <laughs> but I think once you get them rooted, that that's, that's kind of the biggest mm-hmm. challenge. Once they're a lot of plants want to put down roots before they'll put out, you know, vegetative growth. And mm-hmm. so, because the roots kind of, you know, they're that's their source to, to nutrients and water. So um it's probably more that you're yours are just slower and not that they they're not doing well.
0: Yeah, dude, look at that. It's just climbing up
2: the wall. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> What is that? Is it potted or is it in like a tank? Um, I'm
0: trying to remember. I think it's it's in like yeah, it's in some sort it of It says heavily
1: planted aquarium. Yeah. With air stones, room circulating fan above. So I would assume it's like a it's a small like a fish tank or something. Yeah. And just growing it's just up wild. up and over it. <laughs> it's awesome.
0: Now, as far as buying plants from, like, Lowe's and stuff, I know a lot of people sort of do, what is it, like, carbon bombs to get rid of any snails or anything like that? Have you you done that at all? With-
2: yeah, some people will do, you know, they'll seal them up and, and melt some dry ice around them and try to CO2 bomb them. Or I tend to just, you know, from Lowe's or from a garden center, I guess I have the luxury of having a greenhouse, so I'll just buy it and put it in there for a month or so and let it grow out. And I don't see any issues. It's, it's, I tend to not worry about it.
0: Do you, you change out the soil or anything when you get it into?
2: Yeah. I'll, you know, so much of those soils are, are, are peat based soils and I don't like peat at all in my, in, in my either plant substrates or animal substrates, because when peat gets dry, it's really hard to rewet. So I'll just, the minute I get it, I'd take it out of the pot and, you know, put the jet set on a a hose sprayer and blast all the soil off and and put it either in, if it's destined for a tank, I'll probably just put it in sphagnum moss or something like that. Or if I'm going to grow it out in the greenhouse for a little while, I've got a, a few different, you know, kind of bark mixes that I mix up stuff. Sphagnum doesn't do well here over time outside because of the heat and humidity in the summer, it just turns it into kind of slimy goo. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm growing anything in sphagnum in the greenhouse, it, it has to basically be repotted every fall just because every summer breaks it down. So I try to use the the cocoa chunks like reptile chip or something like that and mixed in with regular mulch, you know, hardwood mulch from the store or um, orchid, you know, what they call orchid bark and that kind of pumice.
0: Hmm. Gotcha. Very cool. So in keeping tree frogs and dart frogs, is there one in particular you enjoy more? And then what are sort of the pros and cons of of both? I've I kept a red eyed tree frog when I was a kid. I put it in like a like a little one gallon aquarium with a heat lamp right (laughs) on top of it and absolutely fried Fried it. it. Haven't haven't kept tree frogs since.
1: I've always yeah. wanted to. I've always wanted to keep tree frogs because I absolutely love them, especially like gray tree frogs. I love gray tree frogs, but I've just I've never done it. They scare me, not actually, but like keeping them scares me. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: the glass frogs are cool.
2: Yeah, the the glass frogs are cool, and I'd almost classify glass frogs more like darts. Their their oh, yeah. care and their setups are. Yeah, if you, I mean, glass frogs from a husbandry standpoint are basically just nocturnal dart frogs um you'd set them up naturalistic with a substrate just like you would darts They'll eat, uh most of the small glass frogs will take heidi uh fruit flies as a staple some of the bigger ones like albumaculata and um granulosa will want like pinhead week and a half old crickets or bean beetles if you did bean beetles that would work too um but yeah and, and you know they'll breed like dart frogs you don't need You can put them on a rain chamber. Some of the tougher species may need a rain chamber, but I've bred um, all of the, our Hyalina batracheum, Valerioi, and Aureogatatum, which are the, one of those is the Costa Rican species and the others from Ecuador. Um, In basically dark frog conditions, big leafy, you know, philodendron pothos type plants, typical terrestrial substrate, just mist on them at night. If you get a cold front come through and your females are gravid, you will most likely get eggs. Um, same thing with, um, Maculata. I've gotten, or yeah, yeah. Maculata. I've gotten eggs from them the same way. Um, I have a friend who keeps granulosa and he was only ever successful getting eggs in a, in a rain chamber. So those may need to be cycled a little more. Um, but yeah, glass frogs, people think they're sensitive and, and are tough to keep, but they're basically, like i said nocturnal darts as far as like true tree frogs they're a lot more work than darts are because Mm -hmm. they're not as conducive to a naturalistic setup i've kept of like true tree frogs i've kept uh, agalichnus lemur which is the lemur leaf frog which that one's a little more i've kept those naturalistic and bred those they do need a rain chamber to breed some people if you miss them heavily in a naturalistic setup they'd probably lay eggs too um but then things like Craspidopus, those you really they're from high in the canopy they'd almost probably prefer uv because they do sleep during the day on the tops of leaves so they're probably getting some sun and they need pretty clean conditions so when i've kept those in the past you almost keep them like a, a chondro or a a a uh, emerald, you know, puppy pad bottom that you keep kind of humid, nice big water dish, some leafy plants for them to sleep on. And you really keep them dry in the non breeding season. You rarely mist. You just keep fresh water on them and they'll go down to those water bowls and soak. But misting really stresses them out because it gets them in the breeding mode and they really need seasonality to get them to the point where, you know, they they build up their reserves in the dry season. And when they breed, you know, they lay. You know, 20 eggs or so in a clutch and then they're not going to lay another clutch until six months down the road. Um, I have kept the other tree frog that I've got probably the most experience with or anepica, or their triprion now spinosa, the coronated tree frog and those are um, tree hole nesters, so they lay their eggs in like at the water line in, in nature, they'll go into a tree hole and actually lay their eggs at the water line. In captivity, you can use like cork rounds or something, and they'll do the mm-hmm. same thing. And then the tadpoles will eat the unfertilized eggs or the extra eggs that fall in similar to like ufaga or some of the ranitamea mm-hmm. do. Um, those take to a naturalistic setup a little better than than some of the true like leaf, you know, the agalichnus, red eyes, Craspidopus, uh, Calcarifer, all kind of want that sterile, high canopy conditions.
0: Oh, that's so cool. The little tadpoles maybe. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's the Aureogitatum. That's the Ecuadorian species. That's are they all cool. that pale usually? In that species, they generally are. Some of them have, they have those yellow spots on the dorsal side and yeah. they'll some of them have bigger yellow spots, but that that species is is really clear. And then this is the Costa Rican. That's
1: Valeroy. Those are incredible, oh, man. Yeah,
0: that's freaking cool. I don't know, man. I loved my darts. I miss my Ranitomeya, especially. I don't. I, I'm hoping eventually I'll get back into some, but I need more space to do
2: that. Yeah, they do eat up a, a good bit of space. I, I got started in darts. They'll always kind of be a first love. So I don't see myself ever getting completely rid of them. I'm down to I only keep now um Red Vicente, which is the one that you just had up, yep. um, Redhead Histrionica, Pilsa Sylvatica, and um Golfito Granulifera. So I, I keep all Ofaga now and they're just easier. They raise their own tadpoles. Mm-hmm. You're only gonna get, you know, two to three babies per clutch and you know you might get of the the vicenti, you know i might get 10 offspring in a year from a pair from the larger obligates maybe five if you're lucky um so you know you're not overwhelmed with froglets you're not overwhelmed with a bunch of babies to take care of so they're, they're just easier from that perspective they're not the the froglets are a little more fragile than some of the easier renin or dendrobates but you know they kind of take care of themselves as long as you take care of the adults.
0: Yeah, I tried the the blue jeans and they were they were imports and uh, it did not. That was the only UFE I kept. So.
2: Yeah, and those are real. The, those Nicaraguan blue jeans are real hit and miss. Their colors, I like the the their coloration better than the Costa Ricans. But I had some for a while and I never saw them. They're super shy. Yeah, and a lot of them didn't make it.
0: Yeah, I always w- I wanted to sort of get into them more, but I don't know. I just ran into May I liked so much because they didn't take up as much space as you know, my uh the Vitatus and stuff I had and Luke's and and whatnot. So I, I just I loved the Vanzolini. I had some imitator Veradero I liked a lot. I had uh
1: why am I drawing a blank? Um, you had a lot of darts for a while there, man. The
0: southern variabilis, I had one. Oh yeah, them. yeah. Never, nice. never, never got a mail for her. I really wish I had. You know, because those those were just so freaking gorgeous, man. They're fun. I I do miss them, you know. And I miss like hearing the calls and stuff around the house when it's quiet.
1: That would have been my favorite thing about them is having the having the calls around because that's. That goes back. I grew up with a pond in my front yard and whenever it rained, the mm. toad the toads would just flood the pond and all night you would just hear them calling like yeah. crazy and it was the best thing to fall asleep to. <laughs> yeah.
0: What do you I mean do you have histrionica now or no?
1: Yeah, I have the
2: redheads with what you've oh, got up here.
1: Yeah. Oh, those are freaking insane, yeah, man.
2: Yeah, that was oh. my first Ooh. what they call large obligate and and those always the redheads kind of hold a, a special place for me. There's tons of cool ones available now, but mm-hmm. I, I've always liked the redheads.
0: And how do those compare to the Vicente?
2: Uh, so Vicenti are, are tiny. They have a call. Uh, if you've ever heard a Scudo Pamelio call, their calls a lot more high-pitched and rapid. Um, both are probably equally as bold. I like the Vicente because they, tend, they don't seem to be as aggressive as the other Ufaga. You know, yeah. generally – you keep Pamilio or either or the large species in pairs. I've kind of accidentally ended up with a with a two point two in one of my enclosures, and both pairs are raising eggs. And the males call at each other, and then go court females, and then go back to calling at each other. But they've never any wrestling. Or I found that having the four in the enclosure together, they're a lot bolder um, than than just the pair. So I like them from the aspect that they're small and that they do well in groups. And that was also kind of a, that species was kind of special to me because that was another one that, that, you know, when we go over to Ian's house, he'd talk about climbing trees in Panama and, you know, knocking eyelash vipers out of the trees and stomping bromeliads (laughs) as he climbs up to get to the top of the tree, to tip it over, to catch some Vicente that are in the top, you know, the top bromeliad at the top of the tree. And, um, I got a pair years ago, back when they were really rare and was on the cusp of, I'd gotten into them with a friend. We'd gone in together. I had started getting eggs, but they were older and kind of got infertile eggs and finally started getting tadpoles, but they weren't developing. And then he decided he wanted to get out of them. And so I didn't have the money to, to buy him completely out. So we decided to sell them. And then for three years, probably, you didn't see Red Vicente. They, they were just extremely rare in the hobby. And mm-hmm. then I, there was a Panama import of them probably in 2018 or so, one of the last full Panama shipments. And I was contacted by somebody asking if I wanted a pair. And I was like, absolutely, I, I, I'm gonna figure these out and get them right this time. And uh, so I started with the, a pair from that, and I still have that pair. I've set up a second trio, and then the original pair also has some others frog. That's the one that I said I ended up with the two point two. So both tanks are breeding now. So I've got a pretty decent group of those now.
1: What the
0: heck? I is just that, yeah. I've always dude. loved the just like with the histrionica the and the sylvitica, You know, they're just that they just have a look to them that you don't see in any other. thing is menacing. Just
1: have that man. sort
2: of blockiness
0: to them
1: that's a, that was amazing
2: yeah and they can be i've seen tanks where people you know really large three by three by three enclosures where people were keeping uh, a pomelio locale with an erratus and you would think you know the erratus are a good bit bigger but you know the pomelio will ride the erratus around like you know cowboy on a
1: horse until no the erratus no oh yeah that's incredible. So do you keep any um do you keep any snakes in like planted aquarium or enclosures or anything like that
2: not planted like like you would a dark frog i mean i'll put some either some live potted plants in the the arboreal i, I keep the emeralds and i've also got a pair of uh, Corallus annulatus the, the annulated tree boas and so i'll, I'll put some you know potted plants in there but but nothing as elaborate as like
1: dark enclosure right right yeah i didn't know if you just yeah just i just met live plants in general not not so much like the darts
2: yeah i'll do like a pot of philodendron or something
1: nice do you so
0: between uh pothos and and philodendron do you find that one is easier to like does one take off faster than the other
2: no, not general. Well, probably I don't use a whole lot of the 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 green and yellow pothos. I, I don't love variegated plants, but it's just a look thing for me. Mm-hmm. I'll go for um, there's a they call it silver pothos or it's a syndapsis that if I'm putting it with an Asian species, I'll use that. Otherwise I'll use the what you know, the Heartleaf philodendron for for New World stuff. But that's just kind of one of my quirks. I like to to keep the new world plants with new world animals and vice versa.
0: Oh, you had some Spangler eye at some point too.
2: Yeah. I've got a pair. I've got an adult pair now. Oh, they, cool. the male is just getting to be breeding size. So maybe I'll get eggs this year.
0: I still need to get Pierre Leone's book.
2: Yeah, that's a good book and it's cheap.
0: He said he'd send me an autographed copy. I just got to pay for it.
2: Yeah, it's worth the. I think I got it. It was only $15, $20 or so. It's packed with information.
0: And how do you have yours set up?
2: I took, I forget, it's the, I think they're 30 wide, 20, 24 deep, 12 tall vision cages. And they're on just kind of a a soil substrate topped with sphagnum. And then I've got a a nice, uh, you know, plant saucer water dish and kind of built them a, a little cave area for the out of cork bark for cover, and I've got one mister that goes off once or twice a day in there, and they're kept, you know, kind of room temperature. Um, I have LED lights for the plants, but I don't use UV or anything. They're almost like lizard turtles. They they act more like a yeah. lizard than they do a turtle.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that they were as small as they are until we talked to Anthony about them, you know, on here a couple of weeks yeah, ago. they're it was- tiny every picture you see, it's like super close up and stuff, and so you can't, you don't really get much of a context in terms of the actual size of them, but... Right. Yeah, top, my, my you
2: know. male is three, two, three inches, probably. That's crazy.
1: That's so wild, man. Yeah. It's so tiny. Uh,
0: da, 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 da. So, what's your... Of all the darts and stuff you've kept, what's like your your bottom line, like favorite bar none, whether you still have them or you kept them in the past, what was the, what's the, what's the number one pick?
2: That's kind of hard. I would probably say either Vicente or Renitome or Reticulata. And those are kind of still, I, I never, I produced a couple of offspring when I had them, mm-hmm. but I had two pairs at one time and probably at any given time while I was breeding those, I had 30 tadpoles and they would pop front legs and be, you know, a froglet absorbing its tail and they'd die. And okay. then the same thing would happen, you know, just boom, one after the other. I'd get them almost to development and they'd die. And I think what happened was my water quality, I wasn't using RO back then. I was just using faucet water because when you, you know, you everybody says our water here is is some of the highest quality in the country. And for, you know, humans to drink, that's right. But I've done, you know, PPM testing on it and we're at like 150 parts per million, which is pretty high for, you know, compared to rainwater or, or something like that. And so I think I still had some dissolved solids in the water that by the time, you know, from even from water changes and topping off the water, in just the amount of time you know they sat in those cups for two months, the water got stale. and by the end, the water quality was going bad and and that kind of did them in. I really think if if I did them again and and just kept the tads in RO, they'd probably do fine. Mm-hmm. But those are just cool. I mean, they're tiny. That's the smallest dart frog available in the hobby. and but they're like tinks. I mean, they're they're like, you know, a third of an inch long tinks they're they're probably the most aggressive renina they're largely terrestrial um you can pretty much only keep them in pairs i i initially got four froglets and just were growing them up together and woke up they don't have you know they don't have the call like an imitator they're they're in the the fantastica group so they have that mm-hmm. kind of buzz dendro babies like yeah. call and they were calling so loud with that buzz call which isn't very loud at all but it was loud enough to, it woke me up one Saturday morning, and this was in, when I was in college and, and had them in my apartment. And one of the females was holding the other female down in the film canister of water, trying to drown it. So oh, I, you know, these are frogs that are this big. And so I popped her out, and then the next day, same thing, but with the males, popped one of the males out. Within a week, the pair that was still in the enclosure, I had eggs, set up the other one, and I started getting eggs from them, too but you know, you see any, you know, maybe in a big, you know, two foot cube or something, you could keep a group, but in a standard size tank, that's mm-hmm. relatively, you know, normal for the size of the frog. If you do more than a pair, you're only going to end up with a pair in the end. Uh, so just the kind of quirks with them. I think they're a challenge. They also have really nice colors. They're, they're really bold for a tiny frog. And so, those are between them and the Vicente that those are easily my favorite.
0: I just, man, it, it never ceased to amaze me just how for that. Something so small can be so complex behaviorally and socially mm-hmm. like it's, it's mind blowing, you know, that they're just, they're so hardwired to do these, you know, parental care and, you know, killing potential, uh, you know, competition. Um, you would just think something like that. It'd be like keeping roaches or something like there's just <laughs> There's nothing really like the light. There's nothing. You wouldn't expect complex behaviors from them. Right. Right. So that was, that was one thing that just always fascinated me, especially about Rana to me. It was just how big, you know, their personalities would be for being so small and then just how complex they are. Uh, especially the Vanzolini and watching them, you know, do their thing and, watching dad move tadpoles and seeing it'd be like every time I came into my bedroom, which is where they were, you know, they'd be around the canister and they'd be taking care of tadpoles. They'd be in the bromeliad checking on stuff. Like they're just constantly like 24 seven checking, checking things and taking care of things. And those were fun. I really enjoyed the Vanzolini a lot.
2: Yeah. And that's another thing that that's cool that you get with darts and you can get it with a lot of the species is you can witness the full cycle of life in, you know, one enclosure, whether it's the reninimae or the the ofaga that are raising offspring, you know, they -hmm. court, they lay eggs, they transport, they raise, they morph, or things like Anthony I, where, you know, you can set up a a pond in the corner and, you know, dad takes, you know, 30 tadpoles on his back and hauls them over to the pond and they grow up in there and then, you know, they'll live on fruit fly and detritus and, Mm. and, you know, some number of them will morph and, and you end up with, you know, you can see it that way too, where there's no parental care. So yeah, I've always thought that darts are one of the a cool, you know, from an educational standpoint, that seems like a cool classroom animal that, you know, the the maintenance is relatively simple as long as you can be disciplined and you can really learn a lot from one single enclosure. Yeah. Did you ever
0: keep any phylobaties?
2: Uh, I've kept Vitatus. Friends have had Terriblis. I've always liked the kind of smaller stuff. Mm-hmm. Um i always wanted there was a a morph of auretania which is a colombian species that they called them wide banded auretania and they they were um almost they kind of looked like vitatus coloration but in a slightly bigger frog you know they're small tink big erratus size but that was an old that was a real old line locale morph that I, it's probably dead in the hobby now there's not a lot of people that keep that species.
0: I always wanted tinks never kept any though.
2: Yeah, I've kept a few over the years but that's I've never produced dendropades. I've kept lukes and tinks and erratus for some amount of time but never I've always been more interested in the the smaller ones or the you know seemingly more complex ones.
0: Yeah.
1: The tinks are the the really big ones, They're right? Big ones yeah, yeah always, obviously when it comes to dart frogs i that those are the ones that i like to lie I like i like big i don't know what it is my fascination with big frogs <laughs> i really like big frogs i don't know why i think they're so cool and when it comes to darts i love the i love the tinks. man they were they're just huge yeah, yeah and those are good i mean they're they're
2: super bold so you know that's mm-hmm. kind of your existential azureus is what you show it just about anybody in Azurias, and they'll be able to tell you it's a dart frog,
1: right? Oh yeah, for sure.
0: That was one of the things I liked about tanks was just the very like there was so many different varieties of them. You know, there's like one that fits the bill for just about anybody. I always liked, like like Atlantis was always one of my favorites.
2: Yeah, I like that color I mean, too. You know, yep.
0: just, um, I like the Atlantis because it was mostly black. You know, like mm-hmm. black, the bodies were black. It was oh, like wow. faint yellow. I don't know if I've seen. I have to show you, but. Yeah. Those were always, I never kept any of them, but that was always the one that caught my eye the most. Um, There's just, and then the Tumamake are also
2: ridiculous. Yeah, those are crazy. It's like you took five different frogs and shoved them together. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Jeez. Cool.
0: So as far as snakes, if you could only keep one species, what would it be?
2: Maybe Anulatus. that annulated tree boa. Yeah.
0: Everyone I've talked to that has those enjoys those as well.
2: Yeah. They've got kind of the attitude of a basin. You take them out do whatever. I guess the only downside is that they, they don't come in the colors that Amazons do, but they also don't have the attitude that Amazons do. So um, that makes them pretty neat. They're not great display animals. They tend to, to kind of, sometimes they'll perch, sometimes they'll get under a, a piece of cork or something on the ground. Um, but you know, you can get some really, really stunning orange phase animals. And even some of the brown ones, you know, you get some that kind of have that white speckling up into yeah. Terry Burwell's got some that, that kind of have that freckling of white in them. and And that's pretty neat.
1: Those are a little larger than Amazon's, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I think they get... Seven, eight feet or so. I'm not familiar yeah, with how big Amazon's get,
1: but I know I know they're thin-bodied animals. But I, I thought that I thought the um annulated were a little a little larger than the.
0: I think annulated are Amazon. a little chunkier, but not. I mean, when you're talking about chunky in the context of of you know, tree bones yeah. and <laughs> stuff, that's not much. But I definitely I think the the annulated seem to be a little more heavy-bodied than compared to yeah. Amazons. But I I could be completely wrong there. I've never kept them, but. I've always wanted Rushis. That's always been Yeah, name. those are cool too. People need to start producing them.
2: Yeah, um, and those are wild. There's just so many, you know, the mainland animals look totally different than those. What's the is it Trinidad? Is Trinidad. That the, yeah?
0: Yeah, I love the the high black. I can't remember if it's the Venezuelans or the Costa Ricans, but there's some that just have a ton of black. Right. You know. But I they fit right right in with the with the Ganiyama Jans and I that I have too. There's just something about that fade, you know. I like that that light to dark. Yeah, right. It's just really cool. Which
1: Jans and I are having, incredible.
0: Yeah, but I mean, like having those. I have a I have a Pothos that's gotten pretty big in that cage. Mm-hmm. You know, going back to that, and they haven't destroyed it yeah. somehow. I'm actually kind of surprised. I mean, I I don't see them much. If I'm in the room, they're not out. <laughs> but I find like sheds and stuff all the time. So they're definitely doing their thing. But for a Colubrid, they're surprisingly not destructive
1: you but should put a camera like a, a night night vision camera or something to see how they how they do and then at night like what they do how active they are so i'd be curious because i've never seen them out like whenever I'm in your room, I've usually never seen if, them out. And if about. I see them
0: they they have a head, like their head is just sticking out. And I think cause they have a UV bulb. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of what we've talked about with some of the geckos and stuff where they only put like a portion of their body out and get what they need right. instead of just hanging out full bore. Right. Um, but I'm curious.
1: I like how active they are. Like at night, do they go, go around and cruise the tank? And
0: I don't think so. Anything? I think they're, they're pretty strictly diurnal. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never noticed like, cause usually before I go to bed, I'll walk in real quick, double check everything, flip on the light. And mm-hmm. I never, really see them out so i don't know but like i said somehow that pothos has managed to survive and do really well and yeah not you know i've there's there was a point in time where i had a uh, like a pothos in a, like one of the taller deli cups in like a hanger that sits that screws into the side of the tub and i had that in with one of the chondros and i would find that plant ejected and like dirt everywhere
1: (laughs) i remember that it was like almost daily dude he destroyed that it finally
0: got to the point i just took it out i was like i'm not gonna i'm not playing this game i don't know what he's doing like it's a (laughs) con you're not supposed to do this kind of crap
1: he kept on trying to perch on that on the cup holder didn't he
0: i just left the holder in there and he just started perching on it i was like okay that's
1: that's (laughs) yours now
0: if you like it you like it fun buddy uh, what is your advice for people who advice for success with a diverse collection? is the
2: way I worded the question. I think to be successful, you you one have to be disciplined. You know, you have to depending on what you're. You know, if it's if it's frozen rodents, that's one thing. You can kind of order more of those when you need it. But if it's if you're breeding bugs or you know ordering crickets. Make sure you get things you know, weekly or or you know in how much time that, that you're going to use them. If it's fruit flight cultures, you know, you make them every week or every other week, whatever your your routine is to, to make sure you maintain the amount that you need to feed. And pay attention to species that you can that, that have similar requirements. You know, you can always find a middle and, and kind of go higher temperature or lower temperature in a microclimate maybe yeah. but there's you know it, it's like you can't keep a a desert species that needs it you know 110 degrees in with you know a, a montane you know high elevation central american species it's just not going to work the, the the difference in the temperature or the difference in the humidity is just not amenable to one room um, i think that's the big thing and and maybe You know like i keep most of my turtles and tortoises live outside most of the year and and the way i decide to work with a a species that i'm going to keep outside is i check the latitude of where they come from if you look at you know most of the stuff i keep are from north vietnam south china and that's almost on the same latitude as coastal louisiana so you know that that coastal climate the the temperatures are similar the humidity simpler similar rainfall patterns are similar and so i only bring those in when we're going below freezing otherwise they they stay outside and i just make sure their pens are, are mulched extra and they you know they're able to to do fine um, species that i keep inside kind of have to to deal with the the dart frog kind of baseline, you know, room temperature. You know, I keep Felsuma in there, but those, you know, I give them a concentrated warm spot that allows them to, to heat up warmer than the room, but and it's able to be controlled. Same thing with, you know, snakes, you can kind of deal with it. You know, have them in different racks or, or different enclosures and, and, you know, heat panels and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, you really want to in in some way or another, you have to focus your collection, and and you know you here I am talking about all the species that I keep and saying you have to focus, but <laughs> the the culture requirements and the what you have to do to keep most of what I keep is can can translate to the other species that I keep. So um,
0: there's a common denominator.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Very nice. So you got any plans for the rest of the year? You got any projects you want to get into that you haven't yet? Sort of what's um. On?
2: I am working with. So I have a group of Hystermes Spinoza, which are they call them cogwheel turtles. Uh, they're from kind of all of Indonesia, and it's the ones that as babies they kind of look like ninja stars. The the yeah. the back scoots are serrated, and then as they age, they that kind of wears down and becomes smoother. I have. 2.2, uh, 2, they're all uh, in, in kind of cooperation with TSA, Turtle Survival Alliance, but I have a 2.2 2 that came from them that came from a specific confiscation that they ended up with, and I forget. They, they have locales attached to them. And then I also have 5.8 from a different group that they got. And so I'm kind of keep managing those groups separate, but I'm hoping to get or at least start getting viable offspring from them this year I had one egg that was fertile last year. It went to term and the baby died in the egg. Um, but that's a species that not a lot of people are having any kind of real continual success. People pop out a, a baby every once in a while, but there's probably only one or two people that are continually producing them year in, year out here. And um, that's one that, that I'd like to really focus on this year. I've got some I'm redoing some pins in the yard and trying to figure out, which males are compatible with females to try to get the the best fertility um, and so that that's kind of a focus I, I'd like to hopefully get Spingler eye eggs like I said I've got some some bloods that'll hopefully go um, and then I, I'm pretty continually producing the Clemer Eye, the Williams eye and uh, I've produced ornata starting last year so hopefully you know those kind of projects continue on doing well awesome
1: very cool man well uh, where can uh, where can people find you
2: um, I am I have a personal page on Facebook Zachary goodnell I my you know business hobby page is also on Facebook equatorial ecosystems I'm on Instagram equatorial underscore ecosystems and I do have a website wwwequatorial equatorial and if you go to my Instagram, there's a, a link that can take you to, to all of those things. So.
1: Awesome. Very cool, man. Yeah. Well,
0: we appreciate you coming on, man.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. This was a great episode. A lot of good information here. I think a lot of people will enjoy it.
0: Well, uh, we'll have to do a, a dart frog specific show at some point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I got I got, now that I don't have them, I got a, Live vicariously through others. So you
1: gotta get your fix. Somehow. That's right.
0: And uh, I could. I mean, I could always just piss off the wife and get get into them again, and put another <laughs> tank on our dresser and drive her crazy. So.
2: Yeah. What, what's one more?
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> she gets. She gets. She gets a little. A little agitated when I. I move. Have things outside of the four walls of my room. <laughs> like when things start migrating out, that's when I start to. To hear about it, so <laughs> unless it's in quarantine, and then I tell her, and it's just in our closet or our bedroom, I'm like, these aren't gonna be here forever, you know. Before she starts asking questions, it's
1: fine, just relax, like, it's okay.
0: Before you start getting on my case, <laughs> it's temporary. But yeah. yeah, I'm sure we all and everyone fights that battle. But,
1: oh yeah, um, yeah,
0: um, right, yeah. All right, thanks, man.
1: man. Well, we appreciate it, and uh, have a good night.
2: Yep, thank y'all. Same here. All right, man. later. Boom, boom,
0: boom, 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 All right. Uh, so real quick, four years, of THP man.
1: Oh yeah, Monday marked uh marked the big four. That's four. It's wild, man.
0: Four years of putting up with me.
1: Yeah. It's about <laughs> as long as I've known you now, too, because we only knew each yeah. other a few months before that, and so.
0: Yeah. So it's been awesome. Just wanted to do a quick sort of shout out to everybody. Yeah.
1: Thank um, you. Thank you all for the continuous support over the, over the years. There's a few people still listening that caught us right from the, right from the get go. we have been listening ever since, which I always, always love to hear that. I think it's really cool. And uh, we get somebody like that.
0: Yeah. So the network is over 200 episodes. I want to say it's over 250 episodes now with everything. Mm-hmm um over 300,000 plays wow on all the platforms minus spotify which is another uh, like 30-ish thousand i think so it's just been insane like looking at the analytics and stuff man yeah. we've been like doubling in growth every year so it's just been it's been awesome um you know i feel like we've we say all the time sort of what we've already already said you know it's just awesome what's what's become of all of it and um we appreciate every bit of support whether it's yeah. just listenership whether it's Patreon stuff whether it's you know uh saying hi to us at Daytona or hanging out with us at Daytona or
1: know, if this just, is the only podcast you listen to from us we we appreciate and we appreciate it all man it's great it's been a it's been an awesome run and just amazing how far we've come you know people that you know, we consider very, very close friends came from, you know, basically yep. starting THP four years ago. And it's just it's crazy. I have better friends from making this podcast than I do that people I've known forever. Yeah. You know, like it's it's crazy, but it's also fantastic and I wouldn't change it for the world. So mm-hmm. very thankful for the show, this community. Very thankful for you, buddy, and uh all that gushy Yeah, Englishy I stuff. think
0: you know, I think a lot of it is is us sort of just going into it with no real plan or idea of yeah. of what we wanted it to be, just kind of ride the wave and
1: we didn't go into it thinking we'd be successful. <clears throat> or
0: how yeah, like I mean or you know, how long it would last. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, it's no, just it one was of those a... things where it's like we're gonna see what happens. Yep. And you know, here we are. So yeah. I think whatever we're doing is working and we'll keep recording if y'all will keep listening. Yeah. So
1: that's about all it comes down to.
0: This was episode 154 of the Herpeticulture Pro Herpeticulture Podcast. Brought to you by blackboxcages.com. Check them out. Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. Uh, And Steve is Venom Hot Sauce. Grab you some. If you like it hot.
1: You like it, Steve.
0: He's yeah, he's the man to talk to. You Mm -hmm. can order some at I believe it's stevesnanctuary.com.
1: Mm-hmm. You can order you some, the whole set. Get the whole set and get yourself a black box rack and
0: put your so, rack together. Eat some some wings. It's so good. You could get your rack covered in hot sauce.
1: Then you just wipe it off with your chicken nugget and it's still good because that black box <laughs> rack is clean, boy. <laughs> Ooh, son.
0: It cleans itself. It's so clean.
1: <laughs> you good? No, I'm just dying a little bit, dude. My, dude, this weather's got me out my allergies. Dude, everyone's got sinus infections. Rocking my world, man. I'm, I'm dying. I've been in like a fog at work, and I don't know if it's allergies mixed with kidney stones and everyone's anything else that's
0: struggling. Yeah. All right, we'll be back for Snakes and Stogies 112 on Monday, 9 p.m. EST. Uh, we'll see you there. We'll be back next week, as far as I know, unless something happens. Because I feel like I announce episodes and then end up something comes up
1: and yeah. we're like,
0: eh, never mind. Never mind. That, so, that hasn't happened that psych. often.
1: Normally, yeah. we're pretty good about knowing we're gonna skip in advance. But yeah. anyways, thank you. Thanks for listening, y'all. Have a good.